Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. In my discussions over the last seven weeks, I think there's been one theme that has permeated throughout each episode. It's something that in today's society is unavoidable. That is the use of technology. Technology pervades every aspect of our life, from your cell phone that gives you the news headlines each morning, to the smart TV with every digital streaming app, to the wireless security cameras that allow you to watch your dog at doggy daycare. It's not an understatement to say that technology rules all of us. And as we have seen over the last several years, with technology comes concerns, perhaps most importantly concerns about our privacy. Spending more of our lives online may make our day-to-day more convenient, but I think we've all worried at some point about how our information is being used, and in some cases sold by websites and social media platforms that we frequent. The COVID pandemic has drastically changed the way all of us have interacted with technology. Most people have spent the majority of the last two years working from home, using services like Zoom and Skype to hold conference calls and conduct business. Health systems were forced to quickly and drastically streamline their telemedicine capabilities as hospitals were desperate to offload the overcrowding of their beds by virtually triaging individuals who may not have needed to come into the emergency room for care. And as we've gone through the pandemic, technology was adapted in the hopes of identifying and isolating those who had been exposed to COVID. Dr. Susan Landau is the Bridge Professor in Cybersecurity and Policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Dr. Landau has testified before Congress, is a frequent contributor on television and radio, and has written about the intersection of cybersecurity, national security, law, and policy. Last year, she published a book called People Count, Contact Tracing Apps and Public Health. On today's episode, Dr. Landau joined me to discuss how the technology of contact tracing contributes to public health, and the questions of efficacy, equity, and privacy that need to be considered with the creation and utilization of this technology. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Susan Landau, welcome to the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. We like to ask all of our guests this question to start out. What is your typical morning routine? So I typically wake up early. Uh, I, like everybody else, brush my teeth, use the bathroom, go downstairs, uh, get dressed. And then I go to my study and I work for a while. Um, Then I usually have breakfast and I take my dog for a walk in the woods Uh, Sometimes I go with friends. Sometimes I go just by myself with the dog. Um, It's a great way to clear my head. And it's it's also a great way to get exercise because maybe three times a year I think, oh, I really don't want to be out in this. But the rest of the time there are days when I might not have otherwise gone out. But in fact, it's okay. I like it. It sounds like a great way to start your day. We're going to be talking about contact tracing apps. But one of your main areas of expertise is cybersecurity. And I want to start the discussion by just asking you how you became interested in the field of cybersecurity and what it was about the field that was intriguing to you as you began your training. So I wandered into it sort of sideways. I trained as a theoretical computer scientist, which means that I proved theorems about how quickly you could do certain problems or found fast algorithms to do mostly algebraic type problems. Um, But I always had an interest in public policy and some interest in constitutional issues. And encryption is right at the intersection of the algebraic problems that I like to look at and the policy questions. And in the mid-90s, I found myself in a situation 
where I was asked to be a staff member on a crypto study, a crypto policy study. The U.S. government had launched a project to encrypt uh, voice communications on digital telephones, but would store the keys with agencies of the federal government. And not everybody was enthusiastic about it, let me say, put it that way. And so the professional organization of computer scientists uh, put together a committee and I, I became staff member, but I very quickly actually became the uh, first author on the report. And from there, I ended up writing a book on encryption policy with one of the inventors of public key cryptography, which is the kind of cryptography that allows you to go to an Amazon website or a different website and have an encrypted communication securely sending your credit card number over, even though you've never been there before. Amazon is, of course, the wrong choice. Let me think of some obscure site instead. Um, and um, I worked at Sun Microsystems for a while, originally hired as a two-thirds technologist, one-third policy person, but I ended up as a 100% or 98% policy person. And from there, I ended up, when, when Sun folded with some detours in the middle, I ended up back in academia teaching cybersecurity policy. And like any academic, when I want to learn something, the best way to do it is teach a course that's trial by fire. I like it. It's a great and a very interesting path. And the topic of today is going to be contact tracing applications. I think a lot of us have some level of familiarity with that. Over the last two years, I have gotten multiple notifications on my iPhone asking me to sign up for contact tracing notifications. For our listeners and for me, are you able to give us a, a brief introduction into what contact tracing apps are and their main purpose and goal? Sure. So what you're actually getting on your iPhone is almost surely an exposure notification app request rather than a contact tracing app. When, um, when COVID first started, we of course didn't understand how it spreads and we fully, and, and we don't completely understand all the pieces yet, but we have a much better understanding. And there was a lot of concern that there might be spread through standing next to somebody in the supermarkets um, being on a subway and uh, being near someone who was ill. And so we wanted a way to trace those uh, inconsequential contacts that could end up getting people sick. And so the idea was, well, we know where people are because they carry their cell phones. Could we use Wi-Fi? Well, Wi-Fi doesn't work underground. Um, and sorry, could we use GPS? Well, GPS doesn't work underground. It doesn't work inside buildings. Uh, and besides, it's not close enough. Uh, people have to be fairly close to spread COVID. Could we use Wi-Fi? Well, not everywhere has Wi-Fi, and again, it runs the same problem. We could use Bluetooth. Bluetooth is the radio signal that your mouse, uh, your wireless mouse communicates with your your uh, desktop, uh, your, your phones communicate with your laptop, and so on. Um, and the nice thing about Bluetooth, the theory was that it deteriorates fairly quickly with distance. It's not completely true because it goes through walls, for example. Uh, it goes through walls much more easily if the walls are in a wood frame building than if they're in a cement block building, uh, which means that two people in an old house, uh, in apartments in an old house, might, might actually get a signal that they're close by when, in fact, they're in different apartments. So the idea was let's have apps that, um, that send out Bluetooth signals. Um, my phone and your phone, Josh, uh, will each have an app. And 
I'll, I'll send out an identifier every few minutes or few seconds, and your phone will collect that identifier. My identifier will change frequently so that nobody can track me as I walk around the city. Um, and then if I get sick, somehow you will discover, your phone will discover that I'm sick. And the question is exactly how your phone will discover that. So there were two different models. Uh, one model is the centralized model used by Singapore in which every identifier your phone collects, it uploads to the health ministry. And then if I get sick, the health ministry knows I'm sick, it gets the identifier on your phone, which is my identifier, and you get called up by a contact tracer, told that you've been exposed and you need to isolate for a certain amount of time, quarantine. Um, that's a centralized system in that the, the health ministry knows who you were nearby who was nearby to you. A decentralized system is one in which I, uh, when I get sick, the identifiers that um, my identifiers are uploaded to the health ministry. Now I'm not giving the health ministry any information it didn't already have because it knows I'm sick, okay? Um, but now your phone checks in with the health ministry several times a day. And at some point it says, ah, I have an identifier from the health ministry that matches something on my phone. Josh, you've been exposed. Isolate. Um, and the difference is that in this case, the health ministry has no idea that you and I were in the same place at a political protest or plotting a criminal activity or doing whatever we might have been doing. So when COVID first happened two years ago, Singapore rolled this out very quickly and computer scientists, cryptographers, and also public health people around the world, but in particular in Europe, in Australia, in the United States, and a few other places, were really concerned about the privacy implications. And three different groups designed protocols that were very similar. Uh, it needed to have certain things done on the engineering of the iPhones and Androids, which Apple and, and Google did. And those are the apps that are used in Europe, in most of the United States and in other places around the world. And those are the decentralized apps that are privacy protective. It's a great overview. And you talk about one of the dangers certainly being privacy, like you just described in the, those two models. What about the dangers in terms of, like you just mentioned, not necessarily knowing where two people came into contact with each other and the concept of having false positives potentially as a result of this system and how that may affect individuals that are using these apps? Well, there were two problems, in fact. You can have false positives and false negatives because uh, we know that with COVID, asymptomatic people can still spread the disease. And if I'm asymptomatic, especially at the time when tests were very hard to get, which was the early period, um, then there's no way I would ever have been tested to, to show that I had the disease. And I could have spread it to lots of people on the bus, on the supermarket line, on the subway, and so on. Uh, and then other people would feel safe because they hadn't gotten a notification. There's also the false positives. There was a study done in Dublin in the summer of 2020 that noticed that if you took two phones and you uh, were on a tram, a light, uh, a light rail tram, uh, if you moved apart from one another, the signal deteriorated just as it was supposed to until you got to the part in the car where two cars were joined together, where instead of having windows on the side of the car, 
you had metallic pieces because that's where the, the cars were joined. And then the signal didn't deteriorate. But of course, it should have because the two people would have been further away. Uh, I mentioned already the business with uh, with dorm room, well, with uh, with wood frame buildings. And so there is the problem of false positives. And for some people, false positives can be really problematic. I'm an academic and all of last year I worked from home. I taught my classes via Zoom. And if I had gotten a, uh, a, a positive on a phone, I, you know, I, I would still have probably walked the dog because I live in a rural enough area that that would have been fine. But I wouldn't have gone to the supermarket. I would have arranged for food to be brought. Uh, there wouldn't have been a huge change in my life. That's because I wasn't a bus driver. I wasn't a supermarket cashier. Um, I wasn't doing a job that required to me be, to be physically present in a particular space. Um, so the first time I get a, a positive, of course I isolate this, and then I turn out not to be sick because of course it's an, a positive of exposure. It's not a positive of having COVID. The second time I maybe isolate, but I can't afford to, to not work. And by the third time I just ignore it. So I take it off my phone. There were a lot of, um, it was called ping gate, I think, in the UK last summer. Lots of pings and people pulled the app off because it wasn't useful. But the other thing is that early on we had this tremendous fear of these informal contacts getting people ill. And it seems that, um, in fact, um, at least with the early versions of COVID, and, and we don't have enough data yet on the the most recent versions, but on the early versions of, of SARS-CoV-2, um, the spread occurred in, in sort of a, a, a what we call a dumbbell distribution. That is, people who were very close together all the time. So on the Navy ship, the bunkmates got it from each other, but people elsewhere on the ship didn't necessarily. People living in a house, the couple gets, gets it from each other, but other people living in the house have contracted with a lower probability. Uh, and then, of course, you have the super spreader incidents, whether you're talking about at the White House or elsewhere. So, Susan, what I'm hearing from you is, I think, two things. One is similar to how our perceptions and our decisions have changed based on our understanding of the virus. So, too, so should technology really be changing. But I think probably more importantly, like you mentioned, we know that the virus has a disproportionate impact on certain communities. And same to these apps may have a disproportionate impact on communities like you're describing. Right. And that actually argues for testing the impact on the communities before before you deploy it and after you deploy it to see if it's having a disparate effect. So, for example, if I were to get a positive response from the app, I'd call my doctor. I'd say I have a positive response. What should I do? And she would say, I want you to go get tested tomorrow. And if you have a negative test, I want you to get tested in so many days, blah, blah, blah. And as I said, it'll have a minimal impact on my day to day life. Um, but that means I'm using medical resources, which during this time are extremely limited. And it means somebody else is not getting those resources. So what is the impact of the apps on lower income communities? If, if the lower income communities, for example, are choosing not to use them because they can't afford to take the risk of, of having a false positive, then how do we supply them with better medical care um, in other ways? And, and that needs to be part of the conversation. It's part of 
a public health conversation. It's less part of a medical technology conversation. So what I want to say here is that the people who designed the GAIN apps, the Google Apple Exposure Notification apps, did an absolutely wonderful job of stopping a centralized, very privacy-invasive solution, um, having the phones say, oh, these two people were hanging out together three times in the last few days. Um, all of a sudden, the time hanging out together has increased. Who should know about this? Or this journalist is near these sources. Uh, instead of having that very privacy-invasive solution, they came up with one that was not. But there are other public health questions um, that are also part of this discussion that I think did not appear as much. There's also another piece, which is that Google, Apple decided that only a single healthcare entity in a location uh, can use the app. Um, so it could be New York State. Um, it could be something small. It could be, you know, by county. But the point is then it makes it much harder to test what's the impact of the app if, you're, if, you're lim if you try to limit it to a particular neighborhood or a particular community. Um, and what if we change the app in certain ways? So um, there are all sorts of social impacts from the app uh, that are concerning. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about the physician-patient relationship, certainly there's a level of trust that needs to be built in order for that relationship to work as effectively as it can. Are there certain levels of trust that need to be built between those that are creating these apps or have the intent of these apps really being effective and the communities and potentially the you know more vulnerable communities that they are trying to impact? Uh, that's a great question and a complicated answer. Um, so the first thing is that, of course, the like any piece of technology, it's actually a fairly complicated piece of technology. Um, uh, and so uh, what you have instead is various policy statements about how the app will work, and then you trust that other technologists have evaluated them and so on. So, for example, in the, in the apps that I'm extolling, there have been some criticism of those apps that, that there are ways to spoof them and do bad things. I've read the spoof papers. I agree that there are ways to spoof. Um, I think they're on the edge and we don't need to pay attention to them. Like, like many things, uh, we can say, yes, there is this problem, but it has a very low probability and so on. It means that we want to be careful with this particular user, a general, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and so on, because we want to protect in certain ways. But in general, the pro there isn't a problem with the app uh, for most people. But there's also one has to take into account that different communities have different levels of trust in, in the medical system, in the government, um, in technology, and therefore they're less likely to use the apps. So what do you give them instead? Because you're not going to be able to convince them that this is useful for them. And maybe it isn't useful for them. And I think as we talk about interacting with these apps and you know certain communities interacting differently with these with these apps, that the first thing I think traditionally you would get when using the app if you're notified would be an instruction, whether that's to isolate, whether an instruction that you need to get tested. But something that I found really interesting that you write is really those first questions should be, are you safe if you isolate? Or what can we give to you to make it safer to isolate? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I talked to a number of contact tracers as I wrote my book on, on the exposure notification apps and contact tracing apps. And they all talked about the first thing you do is you talk to the person 
who has been who is is ill and you ask them how they are you see whether or not they need food brought in whether or not um for example uh when i talk to people in um in africa who uh partners in health who'd been working with ebola patients there the question was whether the family that had been exposed needed not just food brought in but water brought in um you ask those questions you might ask somebody when they're told to isolate are they safe isolating at home we know that the amount of domestic abuse has increased during this two year period so you ask those questions only after you ask those questions do contact tracers go to well, where have you been in the last couple of days do you know the people whom you were around could you give me their contact information i won't tell them it was you that gave it that that exposed them but i do need to contact them and there's a human element there that is really important every single contract tracer mentioned the word trust these apps are not contact tracing apps they're exposure notification apps and they say you've been exposed um some might make recommendations and in the case of the irish app the original covid tracker app what it did um was when you downloaded the app you had the option of also providing your telephone number and if you did so then if you got a positive if you got an exposure notification you also got a call from the government health uh, care a contact tracer who talked to you but if you didn't give your phone number then of course they didn't know who you were and you didn't get any of that notification so that app tried to build in some of that human contact uh but the apps themselves don't have that and don't have the ability to provide it uh because it's an interactive very much human thing uh each of us reacts differently to exposure uh i happened to see a person this a friend this morning who um one of whose close relatives had been exposed and the way that friend reacted was very different than the way my mother would have reacted had 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 uh, someone in her household been exposed um each of us reacts very differently and a good contact tracer knows how to do soothing depending on how the person responds and you mentioned the ebola crisis and you know certainly cell phones and apps are a relatively new concept but there are historical contexts that we can draw information upon in addition to what we've learned over the last 2 years are there other examples as you've studied this topic that we you think we could draw on in order in order to continue to improve our contact tracing methods through applications so contact tracing and the exposure notification apps were built at a certain moment when we understood certain things about the disease there were many things we didn't understand about the disease when these apps were launched they were launched remarkably quickly so we the world health organization learned about the, the disease right at the beginning of 2020 or you know the end of 2019 uh we didn't really have a sense of how quickly it was going to spread around the world till sometime in february um the apps were in the process of being designed by mid april and the first working app was out in june that's incredible because it had to have also the engineering within the phone but as the disease has progressed we understand much more about how it spreads it may be the case that the apps are not that useful given how it's spreading but the other part is that at the time of the initial spread in february march april it the the apps very deliberately 
do not allow location information to be collected because that's very privacy invasive. And Google and Apple have architected it to prevent that information from being collected. It was also um, something that was very important to the designers of the of the uh, algorithms that lie on top of the Google Apple infrastructure. But at, in March, April 2020, we really had very little understanding of where spread was occurring and so on. People with masks outside, um, when we now know that's not necessary. It's necessary if you're sitting in a place with a lot of people. It's not necessary if you're moving about. Um, so a number of the epidemiologists I spoke to were concerned that um, because the apps did not collect location information, it was missing a golden opportunity. Should 10% of the users of the apps have had location information uh, collected and provided so that epidemiologists would have gotten early information. That's something that as, um, as scientists and as and public health should think about for the future. Um, uh, and then how does that, if that information is collected, what's done with it? Singapore made the promise that the information would not be used for anything other than public health and within a year started supplying it to law enforcement. Um, so how would you protect against it? Switzerland, for example, insists that any information that's derived from the apps can only be used for public health and has that in law. And Susan, as we wind down here, if you look at the current landscape uh, of what we've learned over the past two years, where we stand now with COVID, where we stand with our contact tracing apps, where do you envision this discussion going in the next two, three, four years in terms of where we need to go, what are the challenges that are still out there in terms of making these apps as as effective as they can and as equitable as they can be? Um, well, the the coincidence of George Floyd in the United States with the disease really highlighted something we should have thought about for a very long time. And I don't hear as much discussion about medical equity as I would hope to have heard. Um, that surely should be part of whatever discussion we have. Uh, there is the issue that I just raised about, do we want to trade a little bit of privacy to understand the spread early on in the disease and what kind of legal and policy protections would we need in order for that to be reasonable? So that needs to be a conversation between public health and technologists and, and lawmakers um, as I said, the, the computer scientists, the cryptographers, and the epidemiologists did an absolutely wonderful job of quickly honing in on what the problem was and resolving one piece of it. But there's a bigger piece. It's the piece that sits within public health. And are such apps useful in, in the spread of respiratory diseases? And what ways do you make them most useful while still protecting privacy? And not all of it can be through technology. Some of it has to be through laws and policy. Sure. And Susan, my last question for you is one we ask all of our guests, for those who are interested in becoming involved in fields that you are engaged in, whether that's cybersecurity, public policy, academics, what advice do you have for them, those college students, those high school students who are looking to make a career doing what you do? <laughs> First, you have to be crazy because you have to learn so many different fields. You have to know law, you have to know international relations, you have to know computer science, um, uh, uh, you have to know public policy. But if you want to be crazy, 
um, than studying tech and pieces of social science, in particular public policy or international relations or law or is the right way to go. And then there are various graduate schools where you can get a master's degree. It's hard to do it as an undergraduate because you're trying to learn, essentially understand well two different fields. And in order to do that, um, you really need more than just a bachelor's degree. Well, Susan, I think this has been a very fascinating discussion. I think you've shed light on a lot of things that are very important and, and things that we need to continue to work on when it comes to COVID and, and the COVID pandemic and certainly health equity. So Dr. Landau, thank you for joining us on the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thank you very much, Josh, for having me. I enjoyed hearing Dr. Landau's perspective on both the usefulness and dangers of contact tracing apps. Even as COVID rates continue to fall, I think it's crucial to continue optimizing the way we use technology to assist in our public health efforts. As you heard Dr. Landau describe, due to the ubiquitous use of cell phones in our society, Contact tracing apps that utilize Bluetooth technology can be used to supplement efforts to control the pandemic. But with the use of technology, privacy concerns must always be considered and addressed. You heard Dr. Landau speak about the different systems used when it comes to contact tracing apps, and as we continue to optimize this technology, our privacy concerns must also be addressed. So too do we need to think about the way in which technology may impact different communities in disparate ways. In managing the pandemic over the last two years, there has been a renewed focus on health equity. We must continue to focus on this important concept when we develop and optimize technology that impacts public health. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. What do you think about what Dr. Landau had to say? Reach out to me through our social media sites. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Take care.